If you have your Bibles, open them up to John 16. Let me recap. If you weren't here last week, we're doing the entire month of May talking about the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Uh, how, what, when, where, why? All of that stuff is what we're going to be talking about over this entire month. And so uh, last week, we, we drank from this fire hose that is the Holy Spirit, and we kind of came out on the other end. I'm not sure how much water you got out of it, but we came out on the other end saying that the Spirit is real, the Spirit is active, and the Spirit is accessible. So the Spirit is as real as the breath within our lungs. It is active as the wind that's moving the trees. He is as accessible. I got to get that right. He he is as accessible as a close friend living in relationship with us, all because of the gospel. This is what Jesus opened the door for us to live in, to have the Holy Spirit come in and reside within us that we might know the Holy Spirit, that we might live with and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And in this whole thing, I mentioned John 16 at the end of my sermon last week, so I'm just going to connect right along with that this week. And we're going to start right there. So let me just dive right in. John chapter 16, 1 through 13. This is Jesus right before he's going to go to the cross, his final sermon to his disciples. And he says this, I've told you these things to keep you from stumbling. It will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they'll do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. But I've told you these things so that when their time comes, you will remember I told them to you. I didn't tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going away to him who sent me. And not one of you asks to me, where are you going? Yet because I have spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me. About judgment, because the rulers of this world have been judged. Um, and, uh, sorry, you don't want to about judgment for the rulers of this world have been judged. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you to all truth. For he will not speak of his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Every the fa everything the Father has is mine. That is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and I will declare it to you. And already, right, we're just diving in. So, full disclosure, if last week was like drinking from a fire hose, that is the Holy Spirit, this week I am shoving you into the deep end. We're, uh, in, in Sunday school this morning, one of the students said, why is it always water illustrations? And I said, well, we're, you know, the Holy Spirit being poured out or baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Bible uses water illustrations. So we even took it a step further and just said, we're going to go to the water park that is the Holy Spirit and then uh, someone said, so soak it up. So there, there you go. There's all my water puns for Holy Spirit time. Um, what is happening in John 16? And I don't want to dive into every single thing that's going on here within this. But have you ever read the Gospels or read something that Jesus said and wanted to argue with him about it? Because I have. I'll just be honest. And, and like, I get it. The Bible's true. It's real. I believe that to be true. Like, I'm not doubting that. But there are still times when Jesus will say something, and I'll be like, is that really what you meant to say there, Jesus? 
I think I, I, think I disagree, kind of, in a, in a way. You know, or, or I'll just write it off as like, maybe Jesus is just being figurative, which sometimes he is, right? If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And I'm like, ah, I get what you're saying, Jesus, but I'm not going to do that. And he's probably like, yeah, I was being figurative there. But when he's talking right here in this final section, nothing he is saying is figurative, so to speak. He, he is giving these factual realities that he is getting ready to die be buried, resurrect, and then ascend to the Father. And at his ascension, he's going to prepare a time to send the counselor, or what we often call the Holy Spirit. And I want to come in because in verse 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth, for it is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I do not go away, the counselor will not come. The New Living Translation says, It is best for you that I go away. And I want to argue with Jesus. I don't know about you, but I want to, Jesus, are you really sure that's what's best? Because in my mind, I feel like if I could just have like, all right, guys, we have Jesus, the Messiah of Nazareth, here to preach a sermon today. That sounds a lot better to me. Like, let's, let's just have a bodily, physical interaction with Jesus. That seems better. And Jesus comes in and says, no, 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 no. It is better for me to go and send the Spirit than for me to to stay. And if I were honest, that just doesn't seem to make sense to me. That is, until I get out of my own head and my own experience and my own perception to attempting to see and understand who the person of the Spirit is and how the Bible portrays him. I think that's the only way we can find that answer. So let me kind of give you our starting question that we're going to open with today. And then we're going to take this question and just dive into it. So that should be the next slide that just has the question on it. Here's our opening question. How is access to the Holy Spirit better than the physical bodily presence of Jesus? Because that's the claim Jesus is making in John 16. He's saying it is absolutely better for me to go and send the Spirit than for me to stay. How is that the case? And the answer is going to be found in a painful amount of turning your Bibles to different locations. So if you use your Bible on your phone, congratulations, you're going to love today. You're going to just be able to click places and it's going to be great. If you use a physical Bible, just get, get your fingers ready. We're going to turn pages quite, quite a bit. But, but bear with me here, right? We're diving into the deep end. Don't worry. We got plenty of lifeguards on duty. You're going to be okay. We'll keep you swimming and I'll stop using water illustrations now. So let's start back off Genesis chapter 2. By the way, in, in the back of your bulletins, you'll notice this really cool little uh, illustration. That's from Pastor David. I sat down this week with him, and we were talking through this sermon. And he said, you know, I really think we could illustrate this, and it would help people be able to follow along. And he's like, let me, let me try that out. So he is so good about stuff like that. Make sure you thank him for that, because if it was me, you wouldn't get any of that. It would just be, hope you can keep up. But follow along through, through your bulletin. And we'll hit different things. So, last week we talked about Genesis 1, where we're introduced to the person of the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit hovers over the chaos water, making a way for life to come forth. And we find that from the first sentence of the Bible, the Spirit is this character who specializes in bringing life to lifeless situations. So the presence of the Spirit is in direct correlation with the reality of life and the creation of life. 
And then in Genesis chapter 2, we get this zoom-in story, so to speak, of God creating life, not just in general, but life specifically of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And so he creates life. He breathes his spirit into Adam, brings Adam to life, gives Adam an assignment to name the animals. Adam finds out quickly, none of these animals are like me. There's something different. There's no helper. And so God does the first uh, anesthesia. And, and is that the right word? An- anesthesia. And puts Adam to sleep. And he's going to do surgery on Adam and create another person. And so Genesis chapter 2, verse 21, it says this. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. And then the Lord God made the rib and had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. So, all right, we got to do a little bit of Hebrew play here. I'm sorry, but we just need to do a little bit of Hebrew to, to get us there. This word rib, it's translated rib twice here in verse 21 and 22. It comes up some 40 plus other times in the Old Testament. Never again is it translated with the word rib. It is always translated side from here on out. This is your Hebrew word Tsela, T-S-E-L-A. So it's like Tesla, but you move the S and the E. So Tsela, there you go. So Tsela, and every other time the word Tsela gets used, it's in reference to the tabernacle or the temple. It's some sort of holy architecture for this design. And we're going to look into some of those coming up in a few minutes. But I want to draw this parallel and point out this, this small little point right here. Because I think by using the word Tsela, Genesis 2 is making a claim for us. It's making a statement about who Adam is and where the Spirit resides. Because Hebrew thought, the Spirit of God tied to the wind and the trees and the breath in our lungs is actively present to bring life to lifeless places. So Genesis 1 begins with creation. Genesis 2, God forms man from the dust and he breathes life into them. And where is the dwelling place of the Spirit in Genesis 2? In the cella, within the cella of Adam and Eve, within the rib cage, right? God's living, the Spirit is dwelling within Adam and within Eve. And this is important because if the word cella is going to be tied in the future to temple and tabernacle, then the claim of Genesis 2 that is in the perfection of creation, the original intent of God's Spirit's dwelling place is where? Right here. That's Genesis 1 and 2. The starting place that God dwells in the Bible is not the tabernacle or the temple. It is inside of Adam. It is Adam's cella, his ribs, that God dwells. Genesis 2 is using temple language to describe the body of Adam. Temple, the place where throughout the Hebrew Bible, the Spirit of God is going to reside. So so hang on to that and fast forward to Exodus chapter 26. So while you're going to Exodus 26, I cheated and I have all my pages marked because I knew exactly where we were going to be today. So uh, while you're going to Exodus 26, let me just give you this story real quick. By the next chapter of Genesis, Adam and Eve have messed the whole thing up. They sinned against God. They actively rebel and do the one thing God asked them not to do. And so God has no other choice but to issue condemnation on their sin and rebellion. And this condemnation comes out in curses in different ways, but the very final curse is that God kicks them out of the Garden of Eden and they are separated from God. The final reality of sin 
is that no longer does the Spirit dwell within Adam. Now there is full separation between God and man. You have to know that to get to know what's happening in Exodus chapter 26. By the time we get over to the book of Exodus, God has been enacting a plan to combat this separation involving calling out a people, rescuing them from slavery, and commissioning them to build a really, really fancy tent. And we call this fancy tent the tabernacle. Yeah, you're, you're still keeping with me here. Keep up. We're going to keep swimming, all right? I saw you. It was the last water, and then I lied. I'm sorry. So ta- tabernacle. And so in Exodus 26, we're right in the middle of God giving the instructions for what the tabernacle is going to look like. And in chapter 26, verse 26, God is giving commands, and he says to Moses, you are to make five crossbars of acacia wood from the supports on one side of the tabernacle. Guess what that word side is? Selah. He's going to say, you're going to create some ribs for this place. Now, we don't use ribs to talk about it that way, but that's what God's saying. Hey, this tabernacle is going to have ribs within it. It's going to have a side made of acacia wood. Why? Because what's going to happen come Exodus chapter 40. They're going to finish the tabernacle, and there's going to be this glorious reality where the kavod, the the glory of God, descends down on the tabernacle like a pillar of cloud, and it's this wonderful thing because God's spirit is going to now reside where? In the tabernacle. Now, if you go and you read Exodus 40 and you follow in with this whole story here, we get this wonderful story of God coming in. Surely there's no longer separation between God and man. Surely the problem has been fixed and God now dwells once again with man. And then right after it happens in verse 30 of 35 of chapter 40, the Bible says this. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting. Because the cloud rested on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. What still exists? Separation. There's still separation between the glory and presence of the Spirit and sinful, broken man. Fast forward again to 1 Kings. By this point in the story, and we are going really fast through all of this. But by this point in the story, in 1 Kings, Israel has taken up a more permanent residence. Their capital city is the city of Jerusalem. And by this point, David has passed away. His son Solomon has gained the throne. And the first thing Solomon is going to do is he's going to take the tabernacle and build it into a more permanent temple. And so, as God begins, or Solomon begins to build this temple, in 1 Kings chapter 6, we start seeing these phrases mentioned about the temple. Chapter 6, verse 5 Solomon then built a chamber structured along the temple wall, encircling the walls of the temple. That is the sanctuary and the inner sanctuary. And he made side chambers all around. The word side is the word cella. So Solomon comes in, follows a very similar format, similar format to the tabernacle. So while the tabernacle has ribs, the temple is going to have side chambers. It's also going to have ribs. And guess where the Spirit of God is now going to live? In the temple. Yeah, you're tracking along with me. Good job. You're doing awesome. Keep, keep going. So the Spirit of God is going to come and fill the temple. He's going to live within that temple. And then you get to chapter 8, verse 10. That's just a couple chapters ahead. And when the priests came out of the holy place, the cloud, of the, Lord, the cloud filled the Lord's temple. And because the cloud, the priests were not able to continue ministering for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So verse 10 The same thing that happened in Exodus 40 happens at the temple. The Spirit of God descends down into the temple. He makes it his resident living place. And what do we find in the very next verse? There's still separation. 
The priests no longer can do their ministry because the presence of God is in there and they have no access to that. So I point all of this out to point out this pattern to you that the tabernacle, the temple, that they are the residing place of the Holy Spirit. It's good. It's powerful. The entirety of Israel is not even questioning the reality of God's existence. They have watched it proven over and over again as the glory of God fills the temple with his spirit, but there's still an incomplete problem. Because while they know God is existent, he is inaccessible. That the spirit within the tabernacle in the temple is good, but not personal. There is no intimacy. So what is the point of this temple? What's the point of this tabernacle? What's the end goal? Well, it's the same goal that exists in Genesis 1, that the Spirit would pour out life on a lifeless situation. But in order to receive that life, what did you have to do if you were an ancient Israelite? You had to go to the tabernacle or to the temple and have someone offer sacrifices on behalf of you so that you could receive forgiveness of sins. And then you could go on your merry way while you just recollected more sins to pile on top of you so that you could go back to the temple. And this was their life. It was good. But it was not complete. Now go to Ezekiel chapter 47. While you're going there, let's take a break for air. How you doing? Told you we were diving into the deep end. You tracking along with me okay? We, we following along okay here. So, Spirit of God living within Adam in Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve fall, their separation between God the Father and God the Spirit within man from mankind. God is not content letting that set. God still wants to dwell again with man. And so he calls out of people. He rescues them. He brings within Moses this command to build a residing place so that he can once again dwell with man. But rather than dwelling with inside of man, he dwells within a tabernacle. Fast forward again, he dwells within the temple, all to bring life to Israel. It's good, but it's not complete. And it's with this that we go to Ezekiel 47. Let me give you an overview because it matters, and then we'll jump into this text. Israel has failed to uphold their end of the covenant. God wants to dwell with them, but over and over again, even with the power of God right there in the temple next to their house, they choose to disobey and follow their own ways. They follow false gods. And God warns them over and over again, this isn't what I called you to do. If you keep down this path, something terrible is going to happen. They don't follow God, and it leads to what we call the exile. Babylon comes in. They ransack Jerusalem. They take all of these people away from their homeland, and then they destroy the temple. Where is God living? In the temple. And they destroy it. So where is God living now? And that's a question that every single Israelite was asking on their way to Babylon. If they've destroyed the temple, where is our God residing? And if you go to Ezekiel in chapter 1, Ezekiel's on his 30th birthday, sitting there wondering what's all happened. And while he's sitting next to a river, God gives him a vision. And it's a vision of this chariot that's flying over And the chariot comes up to him, and God speaks to Ezekiel directly. And in chapter 2, verse 2, God says to him, or Ezekiel says, As he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me. You see some parallels line up right here. And the rest of Ezekiel is going to be story after story, vision after vision of God's desire to dwell with humanity and what that looks like. So at the very last part of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 47, he gets what's called the temple vision. 
And this is weird, but bear with me. I just want to read it for you. So if you want to follow along, feel great. If you'd rather just kind of like close your eyes and envision this, that's awesome too. I just want you to see what Ezekiel sees in Ezekiel 47. And then he, God, brought me back to the entrance of the temple where there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the temple faced east, the water was coming down from under the south side of the threshold of the temple on the south of the altar. Next he brought me out by way of the north gate, and he led me around the outside of the outer gates and faced the east. There was water trickling out from the south side. And as the man went out east with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a third of a mile and led me through the water, and it came up to my ankles." And then he measured off another third of a mile, and he led me through the water, and it came up to my knees. And he measured off another third of a mile, and it led me through the water, and it came up to my waist. And again, he measured off another third of a mile, and it was a river that I could not cross on foot. The river had risen and was so deep you could swim in it, a river that could not be crossed on foot. And he asked me, do you see this, son of man? And he led me back to the river. And when I had returned, I saw a very large number of trees along both sides of the riverbank. And he said to me, this water flows out to the eastern region and goes down to the Arabah. And when it enters the sea, the sea of foul water, the water of the sea becomes fresh. And every kind of living creature that swarms will live wherever the river flows. And there will be a huge number of fish because of this water that goes there. And since the water will become fresh, there will be life everywhere the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside from the Engadi to the Engliam. These will become places where nets are spread out to dry. Their fish will consist of many different kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. Yet swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be forever like salt. All kinds of trees providing fruit will grow along both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will not fail. Each month they will bear fresh fruit, and because the water comes from the sanctuary, their fruit will be used for food and their leaves for medicine. Take a breath with me. What's the vision Ezekiel has? And while we could talk about a bunch of different things, I just want to point out one key part of this vision. Ezekiel's vision is that whatever is residing within the temple begins to flow out from the temple. And as whatever lives within the temple flows out from the temple, what comes with it? Life. We've already said, where is the Spirit residing? The temple. And what is the Spirit's main occupation? To bring life to lifeless situations. And so now, what was once you had to go to the temple to receive is now pouring out from the temple And so Ezekiel's whole vision is this vision of of hope that one day the person living within the temple offering restoration to those who come in would flow out and bring restoration to the world. And that vision becomes this staple celebration etched into the Jewish festival of booths or tabernacles. uh, They refer to it as Sukkot. And we'll get there. But let's go to the New Testament. So hold on to this whole idea. Spirit from within, outcast spirit within the temple had to go into the temple to interact with the spirit. And that was only one person once a year that could do that. Ezekiel has this vision that no longer is it going into the temple that you can receive life, but it's the spirit flowing from without the temple to bring life to the world around us. Go in your Bibles to John chapter 7. And while you're on your way there, let me point out a little side spot along the way. As we're making our way into John chapter 7, 
John has already built us into this person named Jesus. He's introduced us to Jesus. And in chapter 1, John is poetically opening this book by telling us who Jesus is. And so John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then in verse 14, John's going to come in and say, and the Word took on flesh and dwelt among men. That word dwelt is a really important word in John's text because it's not just the word dwelt, it's the word tabernacle. That no longer is God limiting himself to the tabernacle, but now the Spirit of God is living where? Within the person of Jesus. And Jesus is going to come and dwell among us. Jesus is going to be the place where man and God meet. Jesus becomes the temple. And this gets Jesus into trouble sometimes because Jesus is going to go around doing things that you could only do at the temple. So he'll go up to people and he'll say, your sins are forgiven. And they'll say, time out, Jesus, you can't do that. If someone wants to be forgiven of their sins, they have to go through the temple and they have to offer a sacrifice. And then Jesus would say, where did you get that? And they would say, "Uh, Moses, the Torah? This has been the way we've done things for the last 4,000 years, Jesus. And Jesus is going to say, no, 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 I am now the temple. In fact, he's so forward with it in John later on. He'll say, I tell you, from the temple steps, he'll cry out, tear this temple down in three days and I'm going to rebuild it. And what is he talking about? his body, right? That the spirit is within him. So it's with all of that laid out that we get to John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, the festival of booths is happening in Jerusalem. And on the last day of the festival of booths, generally the festival of booths is just this time of remembering what it was like when your forefathers lived in tents. And so everyone would go out, they would build these little booths on their uh, roof, sometimes in their backyard, and they would all go out and live in booths. It was a giant camping day for, for Jerusalem, giant camping week, to remember what used to happen. But on the last day, there was this special assembly, this special service that they would have, where they all day long would have this parade of people coming in, carrying water jugs, and they would carry up the water jugs to the temple front, and they would pour the water down the temple stairs, and it would just be over and over again, so much so that eventually you would get so much, this is hard for us, in eastern New Mexico, so we've never seen this much water around here. But they would pour so much water down these temple stairs that the the water would begin to trickle down, and it would trickle, and it would grow, until finally there was a stream running down through Jerusalem. And it was all this reenactment of uh, Ezekiel's temple vision in Ezekiel 47. And it was this sombering service. It was like, for us, what we would consider like a Good Friday service. It wasn't like a hip-hip hooray celebration. It was an outcry of, of wanting God to bring something. And saying, God, the world is so broken, would you please bring what Ezekiel foresaw would happen in Ezekiel 47? Would you outflow yourself from this very temple? And this would be this time of reverent worship and hope and crying out to God. And so when you get to chapter 7, in verse 37, on the last and most important day of the festival, while they're pouring out the water down the steps, Jesus stands up and cries out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flowing from deep within him. And he said this about what? The Spirit. That those who believe in Jesus were yet to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Where does Jesus see the water flowing from? First himself, then us. It's not the temple steps. He's saying, no, 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 that was a 
foreshadow to what's actually happening right now. Now the Spirit flows from outside of us. And John tells us exactly what this means, that the Spirit would dwell again within the cella of men, within the ribcage of man, and that it would flow outward, restoring, healing, and renewing the world. And, and John says, now, this hadn't happened yet because Jesus had yet to be glorified. And what he means by that is just the gospel, that Jesus had yet to go to the cross, be beaten and crucified for the forgiveness of sins, buried and face the penalty that is death, and then conquer death through his resurrection. And John's saying, but once that happened, but once that happened, let me tell you what broke loose. Let me tell you what happened. You see, John is returning us back to Genesis 1 and 2, where God's original plan is restored, the Spirit again dwelling within me and within you and within anyone who would believe, so that at John chapter 20, on the day of his resurrection for Easter dinner, Jesus shows up in a locked room. He's talking with his disciples, and in verse 21, Jesus says to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And after saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 23, Jesus says this, And if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And we're like, what is happening right here? But you got to remember the illustrations that's been played out. Where would people have to go to receive forgiveness? The, the temple. But all of a sudden, now that the Spirit no longer is in the temple, but is now residing within Jesus' disciples, where can people go to find forgiveness? Right here. It's so readily available that Jesus says, I'm sending you to go be temples in the world that whenever someone encounters you, they can't help but to encounter the presence of the Almighty God living within you. And what's that going to bring? It's going to bring restoration and forgiveness and life. It's almost like Ezekiel's temple vision of the Spirit outpouring from us is what is really going on in the gospel. And it's with that note that I'll have you flip one more time and then we'll answer our question. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. If you don't want to turn there, that's okay. I'll just read the verse to you. It says this. Paul, talking to a pretty broken church, just cries out to them and says, Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives within you? This is not something new. This is not something wonky that some people came up with because church was really boring and we needed to figure out a way to spice things up. So let's introduce the Holy Spirit and maybe that'll... This is God's plan from Genesis throughout the Old Testament to the gospel till now till the end of time. This is how God is interacting in Portalis through you because you are the temple. Now growing up, everyone would tell me, right, your body's a temple. And what they meant by that was like, don't smoke cigarettes or get tattoos. And that's what your body's a temple meant. And that fails to grasp what Jesus means by that. Because by saying your body is the temple, it has far less to do with all the limitations we need to put on it so that we can coddle the little spirit that lives within us. And far more to do with the spirit outflowing from us, bringing life to those around us. Our body is where the spirit of the almighty, eternal God of the universe is dwelling, not so that we can live quiet, reserved life, throwing limits on everything we do, but so that the spirit of God can fulfill what Ezekiel foresaw in his vision, and even more intrinsically what God's plan has been from the beginning. This is what the Holy Spirit is. This is who he is. 
See, the temple was no longer to be the limited container of God's presence. First Baptist Portalis is not the container of God's presence. This building is not the container of God's presence. America is not the container for God's presence. You are the container for God's presence. Your body is the cella, just like when God breathed life into Adam. And if you're redeemed by Jesus, God has now breathed his life into you. So it's not weird not new. It's what the Bible has always said. Let me recap it all, and I'll kind of put a, put a pin on all of this. At creation, God affirms that Adam and Eve's bodies are the dwelling place for the Spirit. Throughout the Old Testament, God fills Moses' tabernacle and Solomon's temple, living in the heart of the city, because after Adam and Eve's fall, there's been this separation. In Jesus, God's Spirit fills a person whose life, death, and resurrection breaks every barrier between us and God so that we can now be filled with that same Spirit, and the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead now lives within you, us. And I fear this is where we miss it, because we see the poetry, we see the wonder, and we see how amazing this story is that God has done something incredible. And we picture it and we hang it up over our fireplace. And we're like, that's so pretty. And we go back and we live our lives as if nothing has changed. But if the Spirit is living within us, he must outflow from us. This must be practiced. Jesus did not make us temples so that we could hold the Spirit within and keep him all bundled up and safe. He made us temples and gave us the Spirit so that people would experience the Almighty God whenever they encountered us, so that your waitress would experience God today, so that your family would experience God today, so that everyone you know would experience God whenever you encounter them. So let me go back to my question. How is the Spirit, access to the Spirit, better than the physical bodily presence of Jesus. And I think if Jesus could answer that question, here's what he would say. He would say, the Holy Spirit dwells now within you to bring life to those around you. No longer is the outpouring of life limited to the temple, to this church building, to just Jesus' body. It is now outpoured from each and every single one of us that know the gospel story. So let me end with this. Would you just dream with me for a few minutes? Let's ask the question, what would this really look like if the Spirit outflowed from each and every one of our lives? So, so what if, just, just what if, what if God's plan for First Baptist is less about just filling our seats and more about saturating Portalis with the presence of God's Spirit so that what God's Spirit did through the life of Jesus, he does again right here in this town through us. And what if God's plan for us has less to do with our numbers and so much more to do with the addicted finding freedom with, with the mother that can't figure out how to just be patient with her kids because she's on edge all the time. She doesn't want to be, but she's constantly yelling and screaming. And what if it was about her finding relief in a true love that persists and remains through everything? What if it was about the businessman that goes about his entire life just constantly stressed out in pursuit of the next dollar, finding a way that he can lay all that aside and say, my life is no longer defined by what I've achieved, but by the God who loves me. What if that becomes the defining reality of First Baptist Church of Portalis? What if it has to do with the hand of God miraculously moving? 
I know we as Baptists get kind of weirded out by this, but bear with me. What if it had to do with the unhealable finding healing? What if it had to do with the lost finding family? What did it have to do with the broken finding restoration, with the depressed and downhearted finding so much joy that they can't help but sing so loud? Even Wayne's like, whoa, man, I can hear you. That's amazing. What if the Holy Spirit dwelling within us began to bring life to those around us? Would this place look different? Would this town look different? This is the dream that put light in the eyes of Jesus before he dies. It's what led him to say, it is better for me to go in the spirit to come. And all of this hinges on you and I grasping the truth of the Holy Spirit and submitting to his control over our lives. You see, the reason I want to argue with Jesus in John 16 is because I don't get the Holy Spirit. I think it would be better to have Jesus here. And Jesus is saying, if you only knew, if you only knew what the Spirit would do within you. Let me give this quote from a guy you guys know and love, Billy Graham. He said this. Billy Graham's been a lot of places. Everywhere I go, I find that God's people lack something. They are hungry for something. Their Christian experience is not at all what they'd expected. And they often have recurring defeat in their lives. Christians today are hungry for spiritual fulfillment. And the most desperate need of the nation today is that men and women who profess Jesus would be filled with the Holy Spirit. First Baptist, do you know that Jesus did not die so that you could go on struggling with your anger? He did not die that you could be constantly beaten down by your lust addiction. He didn't die so that we can live miserable lives set with a bound set of rules that makes everyone else around us angry and hate us. Jesus died to bring us back to Genesis chapter 2, granting us full access to God by forgiving our sins and filling us with the Holy Spirit. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Now we'll talk more about how this happens and what this looks like in the upcoming three weeks. We're going to break down three key stories in the book of Acts and just ask the question, what does it look like when we're filled with the Spirit? But for now, we just have to start here. The Spirit is real and active and accessible. And if you've been redeemed, then guess where he's living? Right here. Within you. Marking your body as the temple where God resides. And what he wants more than anything else is the outflow from you bringing life to those around you. But it starts with the practice of us submitting to him. Maybe that's where it starts for First Baptist Portalis this morning. Maybe that's where it starts for you. To submit and let the God of the universe fill you. Father God, thank you for what you've done through scripture That it's not just one little story that we can read and feel good, but it's this model of what you've done from the beginning to the end. God, we didn't even get to touch what you say in Revelation of the river outpouring from your throne. But God, let us be the place where you pour out life in this town. Would you use our bodies? Would you use our minds? Would you use our talents? Would you use everything within us to just pour out your power? So much so that love it or hate it, Portalis could not ignore what you are doing through the people of First Baptist. God, let us be a Holy Spirit-filled church. It's in Christ's name we pray.